Welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Voison, the host of Inside Personal Growth. And I want to thank my listeners who come back again and again and again from around the world um, to listen to the words of wisdom from our authors. And to j- today, joining me from Los Angeles is Susan Stiffelman. She's a marriage and family therapist. And she has authored a new book called Parenting with Presence, Practices for Raising Conscious, Confident, Caring caring Kids. Good day to you, Susan. How are you? Good day to you, Greg. I'm fine. Thank you. Well, I appreciate you being on Inside Personal Growth and taking just a few minutes um, to let our listeners know more about Parenting with Presence. It's a great title and especially in the world that we're living in today. So I'm going to let our listeners know just a little bit about you. Susan is the best-selling author of Parenting with Presence and Parenting with Power Struggles. Uh, She's a licensed marriage and family therapist, a credentialed teacher, and the Huffington Post weekly parent coach, uh, advice uh, columnist. Uh, She lives in Malibu, California, where she's an aspiring banjo player and determined tap dancer and optimistic gardener. You can find out more uh, about Susan by going to HTTP parentingwithoutpowerstruggles.com. Up there, you also find some videos. She's also got uh, videos on YouTube. We'll put links to her Facebook page as well. So, you know, first thing that comes to mind for me, and the foreword of your book here is obvious or Meckhart Tolle, and uh, I know you work with him on this, but, you know, we're living in such a world today that's so affected by technology and especially with kids cell phones, uh, you know, we have iPads, we've got all these things which are incredibly distracting. And obviously the focus of your book is around getting not only parents but kids to um, not just meditate but really be mindful. Give us some ideas because as parents out there today, you know, you go into a restaurant and all you see are these kids, you know, texting one another across the table. (laughs) It's true. (laughs) You know, uh, I'm glad that you asked that because it's permeating our culture and I and our lives in such a way that, as you said, many times people are in the same room and they're sending each other a text or kids get together and they sit in front of a screen to look at videos or something like that. Mm-hmm. So the, the it always starts with the parent. It always starts with what we're modeling, not what we're saying. And many of our kids are really watching us be semi-present or partially in the room. Um, When our children are younger, they will more or less do whatever possible to get all of us present with them. And sometimes that means negative behavior or outbursts, tantrums, meltdowns. I see those problematic behaviors more as an announcement that something for the child isn't working. And sometimes that means us, (laughs) their connection with us isn't working. Um, But but it's not so easy to be with kids all the time. And it, there's always a beep or a bong, a temptation for us as parents to disengage from them. Maybe they're telling a story or they're trying to get us to read with them and then we hear the ping go off. So it starts with our own awareness of the pull, the very forceful pull into the black hole of our digital world. And not to say there's not value in it, but when we can demonstrate to our kids, boy, I just heard that ping, or I really want to see what the latest update is on something, and manage it ourselves, then it, that's the beginning of this conversation with our children. And then, of course, 
it progresses into making sure that our, our time with our family is considered sacred and screenless so that dinner tables and evenings where everyone's reading or cuddling or telling jokes that we're building into our day, not throughout the time, you know, we live in a digital world, but that we're, we're guarding, you know, very, as very sacred times with our kids where all of us are connected with one another in a way that is very human and has been going on for thousands of years as opposed to sort of side by side, each looking at a screen. Well, you know, Susan, we it's interesting how technology has affected us, but also, you know, constantly that's uh, in the news is about bullying and kids and the issues with bullying, but more importantly, the stress. Um, and, yeah. you know, you're advocating because it's the stress to be in the right group, right? That's yeah, part of what yeah. it's about is how do I, as a teenager or a, even a, a, a child that's not even in the teen years, I mean, this happens very young now. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I have to be with this particular clique. Um, I've got to do that. You have some strategies that you've put in the book about helping with communicating with your kids about this, but also staying closer connected and reducing this stress. What are some of the great ideas that you have for the parents listening? Well, you know, when it comes to kids and stress, you know, we're all rather alarmed at the, you know, there's a lot of, um, there are, are more and more kids who are self-harming, who are, there's suicide attempts, but these are kids that are so overloaded without the capacity to cope when life is difficult that it's important that we really pay attention and kind of fortify our kids against the pressures of the world, whether it's peer relationships, it's academic stress, it's family stress. Um, we know, as you mentioned, the bullying, there's cyberbullying. So we want to stay closely enough connected with our kids so that we are the one that they turn to, especially when they're younger, that we establish a relationship with them that allows them to offload their worries and upsets with us. And I talk a lot about that, as you said, in communication. We can either... Um, come at our kids in ways that make them learn not to divulge their secrets, meaning that the child says, well, you know, there was pot at the party and, what, you're never going to that house again, versus, wow, honey, that must have been kind of awkward. You know, I'd love to know more about it. How was that for you? Um, So that you're positioning yourself as what I call the captain of the ship for the child, which provides them with a place to offload stressors and worries and anxieties. And then, of course, I do talk at the whole last chapter of the book, which is almost a book unto itself, is about practices that we can do with our kids, whether it's a few minutes of mindful sitting or it's, you know, taking a walk in being completely tuned in and present. It could be singing together. It can be drawing. It can be, um, I have a lot of things like, for instance, when a child is really stressed, I might have the parent um, invite the child to lie down and say, okay, so let's scan your body and imagine that the, the places where there's a lot of tension or you're gripping because of fear and worry is like a fire. And imagine that you're the firefighter. And as you scan through your body, you're going to pour a bucket of calmness and peacefulness on those places that are really tight and tense and clenched. And so there's a much more um, effort to help the kids become more self-aware of where they are holding their tension, what they're believing and thinking when they're stressed. Um, I'm very involved in the work of Byron Katie. In fact, I'm doing a series with her right now on parenting and the work and, and looking at the beliefs. And we can certainly help our children who are feeling stressed. What is it that you're making this test or this relationship or this post 
mean to you? You know, how are you judging or interpreting it? And that's fueling those stressful feelings. Now, one of the things you talk about in the book, and and I have been married to a woman who's been a school teacher for 24 plus years and just retired Mm. last year. And, you know, one of the things in dealing with third, fourth, fifth, sixth graders through that period of time were boundaries. And, you know, these kids, you you speak about it in the book, but the kids need boundaries. Now, my wife, um, we're avid meditators. We're people who practice that on a regular Mm -hmm. basis. And the reality was is that bringing that into public schools was quite a unique thing to actually do that in the classroom and not get caught, not get caught, right? (laughs) Um, So my thought for you is this, is look, these boundaries are so important. Speak with the importance of it because you say the the kids don't want the parents to be wishy-washy. And a lot of times they are because they're so damn distracted and they're so mindless about what's going on that they just... You know, they'd rather go give them a trip to Disneyland or buy them a gift or something than to actually get involved in what's important. Um, How are you waking parents up to that? Well, gently, because, you know, parents are already walking around burdened by a lot of shame and guilt. You know, we tend to magnify the places and the moments when we lost our cool or we lost our way. So I try to be gentle with parents in such a way that, I'm both reminding them that they can, you know, move into a more conscious place, but also without beating themselves up. So um, it's interesting. When I was writing the book, Eckhart Tolle, as you said, was um, has written the foreword, and actually it's his imprint that the book has been published under with New World Library. So he went through the book with me, chapter by chapter, and in one section where I talk about a parent who was looking the other way with her her 15-year-old, I think he was 15, and, you know, he was coming in late and sleeping late on weekends, and she smelled pot in his room, and he, you know, and she kept sort of pretending that his excuses were the real thing. And Eckhart helped me come up with a phrase for that called dysfunctional acceptance. And so there's a place where we um, have to sort of bravely look at the what is about our children and what they're going through as opposed to turning a blind eye. In my work, I talk about three ways that we can hold a place of parenting in our children's lives. One is as the captain of the ship, which is calm, which is confident, which is capable of hearing whatever the child is going through. Then the situation deteriorates and we move into lawyer mode with them where we're, we're each pushing against the other, trying to convince the other of their, their point of view. And when you're the um, lawyer, when you're in lawyer mode, nobody's really in charge. And then things go further south and the child, for all intents and purposes, is in charge calling the shots. I'm not going to do this. I hate you. And you as the parent are in dictator mode trying to use power or threats of punishment to get some semblance of control. So when you're the captain of the ship, you have boundaries. You're capable of your kids not liking you. Sweetheart, I know you really wanted to go to the mall tonight at 11 o'clock with your friends. And, you know, it's it's not going to happen tonight. It's it's not um, something that I feel is safe for you. And if the child rails against that or he says, I hate you, you treat me like a baby, you never let me do anything, everybody else's parents are letting them go, then you you hold a place for the child where the boundaries are intact and you can say, I get that you're, you find it unfair and I understand that you feel worried about your friends going without you and what that might cost you and I feel, I really feel for you, sweetheart. And ultimately, you may help your child 
cry or be very sad, which is a natural emotion to feel when you're disappointed. But you don't blur the lines and fix them so that they consider you cool or like you're their best friend and all that. Um, well, going along that line, I mean, and that is you you actually encourage it in the book. You said you talk about helping kids feel sad. It's the opposite of yeah. what probably what most parents want to do for their kids but you believe that this is important um because we're always helping our kids try and feel happy how do you get inside and help the parents deal with that and do that in a way that the child understands that it's helping them you know because kids get upset over the littlest things anymore they've Mm -hmm. been rejected you know, it doesn't it doesn't even have to be a prom anymore. It can just be something small. Yeah. Um, so how do you deal with that? You know, I often say that we're not raising children, we're raising adults. And when we hold that understanding as parents, then we recognize that a child who has grown up without the capacity to cope when they're disappointed, who literally falls apart, who insists that the universe be lined up the way they'd like it to be, grows into an adult who's incapable of handling it when they don't get a job or the bid on their house falls through or their boyfriend breaks up with them, you know, and they end up stalking them because they don't have the resources or haven't tapped into the resources that we all come with to cope with loss and disappointment. So as parents, one of our greatest responsibilities, I think, is to really create an environment of safety for our kids so that when they are faced with something that they can't have or do, Instead of fixing it for them, we hold a place for them of great love and compassion. I know, sweetheart, you really wanted to go, and it doesn't seem fair, and this seems to be happening to you a lot. And, and you sort of narr- you know, narrate or frame for them uh, the empathy that demonstrates that you're with them, you're present, you're not going anywhere, you're willing to sit with them even while they're raging or, or angry. And ultimately, we know that the trajectory of disappointment ends with acceptance. Uh, adaptation if we help ourselves and our kids feel the sadness. But if you come across as desperate and needy for your children's approval, then you will abdicate that role. You won't help them move through that disappointment and loss. Instead, you'll try and fix it, scramble to fix their problems, but ultimately you're not serving them because, you know, I got, my son is now 24, and a year or two ago he wrote me a letter for my birthday. And it was such an interesting letter very unexpected. And in the letter, he talked about how he appreciated the times as a younger kid when I had said no. That from his perspective today, nowadays, he could look back and understand that that had helped him generate more inner strength. But when you asked, you know, how do you help a child understand that it's for the best? Maybe you don't. You know, they may not for a while understand that not letting you, not letting you go to the mall at 11 o'clock with kids you hardly know, you know, may not ultimately be a gift. And you kind of have to grin and bear it as a parent and trust your instincts and trust that down the road, you know, you, you have been given the responsibility of making the best decisions that you can. Now, as kids get older, you have less and less of that captain of the ship role because you want them to ultimately become their own captain. And so you, you move more into an advisor role. Do you actually think that's safe, honey? You know, what, you know, but um, but we have to be willing for our kids to be unhappy so that they can discover that we have faith in their ability to move through disappointment and that they have the resources to do the same. 
So now mindfulness and meditation is obviously a very big element in your life and, and you're trying to expose people in your book to this as well. Um, what practices do you advocate? I mean, we have a lot of listeners already out there who are avid um, uh, meditators and practice the mindfulness as well. Um, what benefits would there be for a child learning this as well as the adult and the adult and the child doing it together? Mm. Well, doing it together can be such a lovely, sweet experience. And parents need to be a little... They have to think outside the box and, you know, be flexible because it may mean sitting your toddler in your lap while you meditate for three minutes, you know, and it may mean um, instead of sitting for, in a mindfulness practice that you take a mindful walk. I love to do an exercise with children where um, you just get quiet for three or four minutes and just invite them to, you know, notice that they're breathing, notice that the air is coming into their nose, through the back of their throat, uh, making their belly rise and fall. Sometimes I'll have them put a hand on their belly and a hand on their chest to sort of help them shift the focus to belly breathing, which is a deeper, calmer breath. And then I'll say, just for these three minutes, notice whatever sounds around you that you hear. It might be a car driving by. It might be a bird outside the window. And you're just bringing them to the present moment. You're orienting them to the time and space that they're inhabiting without trying to get them to manage their thoughts or their mind. Of course, there's lots of other practices that you know invite them to kind of notice their thoughts, name their thoughts. There can be counting practices. I have a whole lot of them in the book. But these practices kind of fortify or strengthen a child's ability to not only be um, more centered, more calm through life's rough patches. We know that in schools where they've now been instituted that we have better focus, better um, mood management, you know, less aggression. So there are so many positive benefits to a, even a very small practice, even, you know, a one-minute practice before your kids head out the door in the morning for a bus, you know, where you have a big hug, you maybe sit together, you just breathe three or four times and you orient yourself back to the moment. Very, very simple um, things can be introduced that can make a real difference for children. Well, it's definitely, as you've mentioned, um, something that can bring people mindful. What effects have you actually seen through the meditation practices, not only for the kids, I mean, because you're counseling as a marriage and family counselor, both the kids and the parents, but the reality here is in schoolwork, because I have um, obviously seen Maharishi um, in Iowa with lots of people using meditation, and actually grade levels go up, concentration levels go up, um, the ability to perform under pressure goes up. Um, what are some of the benefits that you would advocate to the parents out there that are listening? Well, you've listed some of the biggest ones, you know, that we see that kids get along better. They're better able to articulate what they're feeling and their frustrations, their worries, so that because they're more present with themselves, they're more connected to themselves. So when they are faced with a difficulty, they're better able to talk about it instead of acting it out with misbehavior or aggression. Um, certainly the focus, the, the ability to concentrate, to stay more, um, you know, present in a classroom and getting along with siblings, there's so many benefits. Um, stress reduction is a huge one that we've seen with kids who have mindfulness practices of some kind. Out here in L.A., you know, there are more and more programs. In fact, my son is participating as a counselor this summer in a program called IBME 
that's for teens. It's a teen retreat. It's all on mindfulness. And Elisha and Stephanie Goldstein have a teen calm program out in Los Angeles so that we see that the benefits of kids learning, even the kids as, you know, especially with the digital pressures, you know, the cyber um, world that they're inhabiting, to to learn how to step away from that and be back in the 3D world is an enormous gift that we give our kids when we introduce these practices to them. Now, one of the sections in your book is obviously advocating some journaling, and you have some great questions here. Um, when you were a child, when did you? What did you love to do? Did you enjoy playing outdoors, painting? Obviously, this particular thing is, as you call in this chapter, modeling self-love, awareness, compassion for yourself. And you have a basically a section there. That, you know, you're asking the parents, you know, and you mentioned this earlier, don't beat up on yourself. Mm -hmm. Um, What advice do you have for parents who are feeling um, the pressures of being a parent, number one, and two, all the financial pressures as well, and three, not feeling that they're doing a very good job as a parent? Because I think it's pretty prevalent today. Yeah, I'm glad you asked that. Um. You know, parenting, just because you can make a baby doesn't mean that you have, you know, your own healthy childhood, all all the issues resolved, or that you have the wherewithal or training or resources. In fact, in the in the introduction to the book, Eckhart Tolle talks about how you need more training to get a driver's license than you do to become a parent. And so I really encourage parents to demonstrate not only for their children's benefit but for their own health and sanity a high degree of self-kindness and care and so that yes there will be those moments I went through those moments and I'm a teacher and a parenting person and um, where you just lose your cool because no one can push your buttons like your children Uh that's a basic premise of the book it's like living with a zen master who Uh points out your frailties and your flaws and your misgivings and your shortcomings So if we walk around constantly with our head hanging low and beating ourselves up, we actually can't show up as the parents our kids need us to be. We will parent them in such a way that we come across as desperate for them to behave well so that we can feel good about ourselves, and that's a terrible relationship to forge with a child. So I encourage parents sometimes to actually literally touch their heart when they've had a rough day or a rough moment and just say, they're there, they're there. And almost self-mothering, self-fathering, self-parenting so that we are healing ourselves from the, our own insecurities and, you know, pain of, of our own childhoods, which we all come with, as we parent our children. And we're also demonstrating to our kids that we can lose our way and make mistakes and take responsibility and apologize and set things right again without, you know, beating ourselves up. Well, I love the quote on the back of the book that John Kabat-Zinn has, an empathetic tenderness runs through this wise and down-to-earth guide to parenting with great awareness. Um, You can feel the love that Susan has for the families that she works with in her therapy practice, and her confidence in all of us grows into the challenges and gifts of being a parent. That pretty much sums it up. This is a great book. Um, forward by Eckhart Tolle um, and under Eckhart Tolle's press through uh, New World Library. It's been a pleasure having you on, Susan. We'll put a link to your your blog and your book and your videos in this as well for all of my listeners. And again, the book is Parenting with Presence, Practices for Raising Conscious, Confident, Caring Kids. It's 
been a pleasure having you on Inside Personal Growth and sharing some of your wisdom today. Um, and for people that want to reach out to you, they can go to your website and I'm sure make a connection. Yes, yeah, com. <laughs>